You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Lucky Land Casino, asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, everyone. My name is Wesley Levesay from the History of the Second World War podcast. Join me on a journey through the most destructive conflict in human history, a journey that will take us not just through the famous campaigns and cataclysmic battles, but also to the lesser well-known corners of the war that touched millions all over the world, as we try and answer not just the questions of what and where, but how and why. You can find History of the Second World War on all major podcast platforms or at historyofthesecondworldwar.com. Welcome to the Age of Napoleon. Episode 47, A Spectacle of Death. Thanks for joining me. We left off last time near the end of 1798. People of Cairo rose up against the French occupation and were brutally suppressed. In his personal life, Napoleon was reeling from the news of Josephine's betrayal. It must have felt like the walls were closing in. Every local rebellion so far had been crushed, but the population remained restive. The Ottoman sultan had declared war on France, and was massing his armies to retake Egypt. The Royal Navy controlled the Mediterranean, choking off Napoleon's lines of supply and communication back to France, blockading Egyptian ports. An amphibious invasion along the coast was expected in the spring. The erstwhile Mamluk rulers of Egypt, Murad Bey and Ibrahim Bey, were still on the loose raiding, causing mischief, and biding their time in hopes of returning to power. Back in Europe, the French Republic was fighting for survival once again. Saving Napoleon's army in faraway Egypt had dropped to the bottom of a very long list of urgent priorities. The previous summer, Bonaparte told the people of France that fortune favored the Army of the Orient more than ever. A few months later, that boast was looking increasingly hollow. But Napoleon was not the type to sit back and wait for the inevitable. In fact, he understood that the longer the odds, the more important it became to seize the initiative. At the end of December, Napoleon led a small contingent of soldiers, engineers, and scientists east toward the Red Sea port of Suez. Their mission was to find some evidence of the so-called Canal of the Pharaohs, a man-made waterway which had supposedly connected the Red Sea to the Nile River. Several ancient writers mentioned such a canal, and so men like Napoleon, who were steeped in the classics, had long been aware of it. However, by 1798, the waterway hadn't been used for over a thousand years. Any trace of it might easily have vanished under the shifting sands of the desert. Many doubted it had ever existed. But shortly after the beginning of the new year, Napoleon's engineers discovered the remains of the Canal of the Pharaohs. Not only was this a step forward for archaeology, it proved the feasibility of France's long-term aims of shifting world trade away from the British-dominated Atlantic and towards the Mediterranean, which of course at the moment was also British-dominated, but where the French had historically enjoyed greater influence. Even as the dream of a French colony in Egypt was crashing down around him, 
Napoleon still kept one eye on the possibilities such a project might unlock. But there was also a secret, secondary motive for the trip to Suez. Intelligence. This was a major crossroads for trade, one of the main portals between the Ottoman Empire and points east, and like all market towns, Suez was also a hub for information, a place where you could meet merchants from faraway places who were eager to trade any intelligence which could lead to commercial advantage. Napoleon let it be known that he was in the market for information about Syria. Now, when we say Syria in this context, we're talking about a much larger region than the area occupied by the modern state of the same name. Ottoman Syria also included modern-day Israel, Palestine, Lebanon, most of Jordan, and even a slice of southern Turkey. It was legally a part of the Ottoman Empire, but in practice, semi-independent. These types of relationships are hard to wrap your head around from a modern perspective, but suffice it to say, Ottoman control was much stronger in Syria than in Egypt, but much weaker than in the Ottoman heartland of Anatolia and the Balkans. The ruler of Syria was a man named Jazar Pasha. He wasn't technically a Mamluk, but he had a similar background. Born a Christian on the fringes of the empire, converted to Islam, and entered Ottoman service as a slave. Unlike the Mamluks, Jazar Pasha was drafted into the bureaucracy, not the military, and he used that institution to climb to power. To give you some idea of his character, his name was actually Ahmed Pasha, but he was almost universally known by a nickname, Al-Jazar, which means the butcher in Arabic. Now, he wasn't some kind of barbarian. The butcher was a great patron, particularly of architecture, which seems to have been a personal hobby. He was a master of the Byzantine, often Machiavellian politics required to rule over such a large, diverse area. But, as the name suggests, he was also capable of spectacular violence when it suited his purposes. By 1799, Jazar Pasha was probably in his late 60s or 70s. He had been the paramount political leader in Syria for over two decades. You couldn't achieve that type of longevity in the cutthroat world of Middle Eastern politics without cultivating a reputation for violence. So, why are we talking about Syria and the Butcher? After the Battle of the Pyramids, Ibrahim Bey took his half of the surviving Mamluk army northeast, towards Syria. He solicited support from Jazar Pasha, who accepted. Not only did the Butcher offer safe haven and resupply to these renegade Mamluks, he began massing his own forces for war. Obviously, he was under orders from the Ottoman Sultan to do so, but Jazar Pasha also had self-interested reasons to invade Egypt. If the French were defeated, there was no guarantee that Egypt would return to the pre-invasion status quo. Indeed, the Ottomans were widely known to be unhappy with the system of quasi-independent Mamluk rule in general, and with Murad Bey and Ibrahim Bey in particular. Jazar Pasha might easily present himself to the Sultan as a more attractive option to govern the country, particularly if Egypt ended up under his occupation once the dust settled. Of course, Napoleon had no intention of letting that happen. As he had learned in Italy, when facing multiple enemies approaching from different directions, the best course of action is not to sit back and wait until they can unite into an overwhelming force, it's to seize the initiative and strike first, while their forces are still divided. And so, Napoleon would gather up what troops he could and strike northeast, into Syria. Ideally, he could smash the enemy forces in the area and create a buffer between the Ottomans and Egypt, 
replenished the army of the Orient by recruiting from the local Christian, Druze, and Jewish minorities, then returned to Egypt to face whatever threat the British might bring from the sea. It was a classic Napoleonic plan, aggressive and risky, but strategically sound, and probably the French army's best chance at defeating superior numbers. Most of Napoleon's generals opposed the plan to invade Syria, but the only other option was to sit back and pray for a miracle. Once he took into account the men that were required to garrison Egypt and those who were unfit for campaign, Napoleon had about 13,000 men available for his invasion, smaller than the army of Italy at its weakest. He would launch the campaign with a quick dash across the Sinai Desert, then advance up the coast of modern-day Israel to seize Jazar Pasha's capital city, Acre, about 18 kilometers or 11 miles south of the modern Israel-Lebanon border. If all went according to plan, the Army of the Orient would be in Jazar Pasha's homeland before he knew they were coming. The French had finally learned some lessons from their punishing experiences in the desert. A huge cache of supplies was prepared on the edge of the Sinai. The men were issued water bottles and new lightweight uniforms, although these would prove to be a mixed blessing as it rained for most of the invasion. A huge complement of camels and horses were assembled to accompany the army. The heavy artillery would travel by boat along the coast. All the logistics were in place to avoid another debacle. On February 6, 1799, the Army of the Orient entered the Sinai, determined not to be bogged down in the burning desert. They failed. But this time, it wasn't a failure of planning or adaptation. The march was arduous, supplies did run low, but it was nothing approaching the disasters of the Army's previous desert crossings. This time, the French were trapped in the desert by an extremely basic intelligence blunder. The only significant town along the route into Syria was El Arish, a port on the Mediterranean, about 50 kilometers or 30 miles from the modern border with the Gaza Strip. According to Napoleon's sources, El Arish was practically undefended. His plan for the invasion didn't even make provision for capturing the town. It was assumed it would be a matter of a few minutes, much like the conquest of Alexandria. But when the Army of the Orient approached the gates of El Arish on February 9th, they found it well fortified and occupied by a large garrison of trained, disciplined troops, mostly Ottoman regulars and Mamluks. The next morning, the French attempted to storm the town. They took the outer defenses, but the high stone walls of the inner city could not be breached. They would have to place El Arish under siege and spend precious time wearing down the defenses. This was a serious problem for Napoleon. The French could not proceed into Syria without taking the town. Only days into the invasion, the all-important timetable was already falling apart. The process of getting the heavy artillery into position, probing the defenses for weaknesses, and beginning a proper bombardment of the town took days. By the time Napoleon arrived on the 17th, very little progress had been made, and the general was furious. After days of ceaseless bombardment, the garrison of El Arish finally surrendered. The French entered the town on February 26th. They were nearly two weeks behind schedule. Time for Jazar Pasha to prepare his defenses, and time for the British and Ottomans to prepare for their seaborne invasion of Egypt. Inside El Arish, the French made an ominous discovery. The hospital was packed with hundreds of dead and dying Ottoman soldiers. Plague had struck the city. The French would not be leaving the epidemic behind them as they left Egypt. 
eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential, and then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only, exclusions apply. With the fall of El Arish, the Army of the Orient was able to enter the more temperate, hospitable climate of Palestine, and the going got much easier. The city of Gaza fell quickly, giving the French a base of operations in Syria. This area had a significant Arab-Christian minority, and they proved to be much more welcoming than the civilian population of Egypt. The invasion was back on track, although it remained to be seen how badly the delay at El Arish had damaged their chances. On March 3rd, the French encountered their next serious obstacle, Jaffa, a major port city on the Mediterranean coast, today a part of the Tel Aviv metropolitan area of southern Israel. In 1799, the French found the city defended with high stone walls, and garrisoned by several thousand Ottoman regulars, including a significant complement of artillery. Bonaparte sent a messenger into Jaffa, demanding its surrender. The defenders responded by beheading him, placing his head on a pike on the wall, and sallying out to attack the French. They were repulsed, and the siege began. Fortunately for the French, the fortifications of Jaffa were older and in poorer condition than those at El Arish. It only took a few days for Napoleon's engineers to create a breach in the walls. Napoleon's friend and former assistant, General Lon, led the assault. Despite impressive enemy firepower, Lon's men held their nerve and stormed into the breach. French troops flooded into the city and took vengeance on the garrison and civilian population. This was a brutal reality of 18th century warfare. If a besieged city did not surrender once a breach was formed, the attacking force typically claimed the right to sack the city. Assaulting troops usually fortified themselves with alcohol, and so drunkenness contributed to the mayhem. A French private who participated in the attack would later remember, quote, There was a terrible carnage. Men, women, and children were put to the bayonet. The massacre did not cease, even when the drummer sounded the order to assemble. It was a frightful spectacle to see so many innocent victims mixed up among the authors of this carnage, their dying cries ringing out in the streets and in houses. All sound was the spectacle of death. The French soldiers, with fury in their eyes, massacred everyone they could find. End quote. Such behavior was not unique, and not even technically outside the accepted rules of war. But by all accounts, this incident was a particularly brutal example of the phenomenon. As this orgy of violence unfolded, somewhere around 3,000 surviving Ottoman defenders fell back into the fortified medieval citadel. What happened next is one of the most controversial episodes of Napoleon's early career. This much is beyond dispute. Those several thousand Ottoman soldiers in the citadel surrendered without a fight and they were subsequently massacred under Napoleon's orders. According to one account, this was the result of a misunderstanding. 
In this version, Napoleon had never intended to accept any offer of surrender or offer quarter to the defenders, which was not unusual in this type of situation. However, some of his subordinates were either unaware of this plan or disobeyed orders and offered generous terms of surrender to the troops in the citadel. Napoleon had never intended to grant such a deal and couldn't spare the resources or manpower to take care of such a large number of prisoners, and so he abrogated the agreement and ordered the prisoners executed. However, it is also possible that the French simply lied to the defenders of the citadel in order to avoid another bloody protracted fight. It also seems possible that Napoleon ordered the massacre not out of practical concerns, but to send a message that might intimidate future opponents out of armed opposition to the French. Napoleon released a grandiose proclamation shortly after the fall of the city, which seems to suggest that he was motivated, at least in part, by a desire to make an example. Quote, All human effort against me is useless, for I succeed in all I undertake. Those who declare themselves my enemies die. The examples of Jaffa and Gaza show that I am terrible towards my enemies, but good towards my friends, and especially benevolent and merciful towards the poor. End quote. Napoleon was facing an opponent who ruled by fear and reveled in his reputation as the butcher. The French considered themselves more civilized and humane than the supposedly barbaric eastern tyrants, like Chazar Pasha or the Mamluks. And yet, it seems Napoleon was doing his best to outdo them in cruelty. After the fall of Jaffa, the French finally came close to replicating the mobility that had served them so well in Europe. In only about five days, the Army of the Orient covered roughly 120 kilometers, or 75 miles, through unfamiliar hostile territory. However, not all was well. After the army left El Arish, men began to fall ill plague was smoldering through the ranks once again. Plague had been present at Jaffa too, and it seems many of the men who had participated in the sack of the city were exposed. Perhaps some modicum of karmic justice for the atrocity. In hopes of avoiding a panic, the army authorities denied the disease was bubonic plague, but too many men had seen the telltale black sores for the official line to be believed. Fear of the disease was so great that apparently some soldiers committed suicide as soon as they exhibited symptoms. On March 11th, Napoleon decided on a grand gesture to address this crisis. He showed up unannounced at the quarantine ward in Jaffa, where suspected plague victims were segregated from the rest of the sick and wounded. He talked and joked with the patients, and expressed concern for their care and condition. In particular, he was careful to let it be seen that he was not afraid to be in close proximity to men suffering from the disease. According to some sources, he even touched the sores of a patient, but this may have been invented after the fact. True or not, this detail may have been intended to echo the ancient European tradition that the touch of a king could heal sores and boils. It's been suggested that Napoleon felt the need to make this humanitarian gesture so soon after the fall of Jaffa to assuage his own guilt for the atrocities that took place there. We can't know for sure, but I find it plausible. This visit to the plague hospital has gone down as one of the most memorable incidents of the campaign, in no small part because Napoleon himself made good use of it in his own propaganda. In particular, the event was immortalized in an 1804 painting entitled Bonaparte Visiting the Plague Victims of Jaffa by Antoine-Jean Gros, 
which became one of the iconic images of Bonapartist propaganda. But this was more than just a cheap stunt. Napoleon really did put his life on the line for the good of the army, and it worked because he really did have the common touch. No matter how high he rose, he always maintained his knack for engaging with the average soldiers on their level, putting them at ease, and making them feel like he really cared about their safety and comfort. The degree to which that compassion was genuine is open to debate. Obviously, Napoleon made this visit to prove a point, not merely because he was overcome with pity at the suffering of his soldiers, but it was a humanitarian act, undertaken with the army's best interests at heart. I think it stands out as one of the few noble acts in a campaign that mostly showcases the worst aspects of Napoleon's character. It's hard to say how much of a concrete impact this trip to the hospital actually had. The plague continued to rage through the army, but perhaps it went some way towards easing the fear of the disease and rebuilding the men's morale. As the march continued, the army passed Jerusalem, and some of the more fancifully-minded officers floated the idea of a triumphant entrance into the ancient holy city, but the ever-practical Napoleon shot the idea down. Jerusalem was of no military value, and the French army had no time for diversions. Their next objective was north, along the coast, Jazar Pasha's capital at Acre, today in northern Israel, just across the bay from the modern city of Haifa. Acre sits at the tip of a narrow peninsula jutting out into the Mediterranean, and has been recognized as a uniquely defensible military position since ancient times. In the Middle Ages, it held out as the last major crusader stronghold in the Holy Land. As the de facto capital of the entire region, Acre was well fortified, and garrisoned by Jazar Pasha's best troops. The fate of the entire invasion hinged on Acre. If the city fell, the rest of Syria would fall into Napoleon's lap. If it held out, he would have little choice but to retreat back into Egypt and surrender all the gains of the preceding weeks. At this pivotal moment, fortune turned against the Army of the Orient once again. The Royal Navy intercepted the barges carrying most of Napoleon's heavy artillery up the coast. The guns were captured, and would now be turned against the French. Napoleon would undertake the siege of Acre without nearly enough heavy guns capable of demolishing its walls, and without control of the sea to cut off the defenders' lines of communication and resupply. Between battle casualties and the plague, the Army of the Orient was now down to under 10,000 combat-ready troops, around the same size as the garrison of Acre. A British naval squadron kept the city supplied, and loaned the garrison additional artillery and gunners to aid in the defense, including a very capable monarchist French émigré officer named Antoine de Felipeau, who had been a rival of Napoleon's at the École Militaire when they were both artillery cadets. Under the circumstances, the siege of Acre was hardly a siege at all. You might more accurately say the French army was camped out at the walls of the city, hoping for a miracle. But, despite the odds, Napoleon was not yet ready to give up on his ambitions. The army dug in, and Bonaparte set about collecting every cannon he could find, mostly lighter field artillery. For the next month, the French guns battered the walls, and the infantry launched probing assaults towards the city but little progress was made. In early April, Jazar Pasha and the Ottomans massed an army of over 30,000 men at Damascus and began marching towards Acre to relieve the siege. 
Napoleon sent troops to intercept them under General Jean-Baptiste Kleber, the former architect who had proved to be one of the most capable commanders on the expedition. With the army shrinking every day and facing a large force inside Acre, Napoleon could only spare 1,500 men. They would be facing a force over 20 times their size. With superior tactics, better troops, and more firepower, the French had won many lopsided battles during this campaign, but 1,500 versus over 30,000 would be a stretch. On April 15th, Kleber's scouts discovered the enemy camp on the banks of the River Jordan, near Mount Tabor, a famous holy site about 50 kilometers or 30 miles from Acre. To even the odds, Kleber decided on an audacious plan. They would attempt a surprise attack at night. It would mean covering a lot of ground in the dark, maintaining complete silence and evading enemy patrols. But if it worked, victory would be all but assured. Unfortunately for Kleber and his men, the distance proved too great. As dawn broke on the morning of April 16th, the 1,500 French troops were still near the foot of Mount Tabor, miles away from the Ottoman camp. If they continued with the attack, the enemy was sure to see them coming, and it would be a simple matter for such a large force to envelop the French assault columns. And so, Kleber had little option but to order his men to form squares, hugging the base of the mountain, and the French braced themselves for the onslaught. Sure enough, in the cold light of day, it didn't take long for the Ottomans to discover Kleber's isolated detachment, recognize the opportunity it presented, and attack. Just like in earlier battles of the campaign, wave after wave of enemy assaults broke on unyielding French squares. Kleber's disciplined infantry poured fire into poorly coordinated ranks of attackers, causing horrendous casualties. But the Ottomans had the manpower to keep taking losses, and so the attacks continued relentlessly through the morning and into the afternoon. For nearly seven hours, they just kept coming. Finally, by the late afternoon, disaster loomed for Kleber and his men. The French were finally running out of ammunition. Their firepower was the only thing keeping the Ottomans at bay. If they had to face such overwhelming numbers in hand-to-hand combat, the battle would be over very quickly. Then, at the crucial moment, just like in a bad movie, Napoleon rode over the horizon at the head of 2,500 men. He sacked the Ottoman camp and launched an attack into the enemy rear. The Ottoman troops had been taking a beating all day and were so surprised and confused by this sudden turn of events that they turned and fled. 4,000 Frenchmen had triumphed over an army nearly ten times their size. Apparently, only two Republicans were killed and a few dozen wounded, compared to several thousand Ottoman casualties. More importantly, the Ottoman army was too badly beaten for any further offensive operations in the immediate future. The siege of Acre could continue without worrying about any serious threats from the rear. The Battle of Mount Tabor was a miraculous victory, fitting for the battlefield, which was supposedly the site of a famous Old Testament battle, in which the Israelites triumphed over a much larger Canaanite army. But it is worth noting that the French had come very close to a disaster, which almost certainly would have been grave enough to spell the end of the invasion. If Napoleon had arrived just an hour later, or Kleber had found himself in a slightly less favorable position, the entire detachment probably would have been massacred, representing more than 10% of the total effective strength of the Army of the Orient. 
How many more battles would it be until Bonaparte or one of his generals made a mistake, or ran into some bad luck? With French numbers dwindling and the ranks of their enemies swelling, there was no longer any margin of error. Even one small defeat could easily spell catastrophe. Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly two million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org. With the Ottoman army falling back towards Damascus in disarray, the siege of Acre would continue. But the French had precious little to show for their efforts after a month outside the city. They had attempted to storm the walls on March 28th and had failed to make so much as a dent in the defenses, suffering terrible casualties. In the aftermath of the assault, one French officer remembered, quote, Many of us were of the opinion from that moment that we could never take the place. End quote. Next, the French tried digging under the fortifications and setting off explosives, hoping to cause a collapse in the walls. When the engineers set off the explosives, the ground shook, but when the dust settled, Acre's defenses remained intact. Nonetheless, Napoleon ordered his troops to storm the walls again, and again they were beaten back with heavy losses. During this attack, General Caffarelli, the gregarious Corsican chief of engineers, who had argued so passionately during the debates on the voyage from Malta, was shot in the arm, and the limb had to be amputated. He seemed to be recovering, but gangrene set in, and on April 27th, Caffarelli died. Not only would the army desperately miss the skills of a chief engineer during the siege, Caffarelli had been one of the most popular officers on the expedition. His loss was a serious blow to morale, as well as to the army's technical abilities. By now, several hundred French soldiers had fallen sick with the plague. More than half of them would soon be dead after an agonizing illness. Their comrades lived in fear of contracting the disease. Artillery ammunition ran so low that Napoleon offered a bounty for every enemy cannonball recovered in usable condition. But, even as morale sank in the French trenches, Bonaparte was still not ready to give up. He increased the tempo of assaults, until the French were launching themselves at the walls of the city every other day. On April 7th, the Army of the Orient's motley collection of artillery finally succeeded in creating a breach in the walls. The French finally had an opening to make a real attempt at taking the city. The next day, they prepared for yet another assault and for the first time, their task did not look completely futile. Napoleon's old friend, General Lawn, led the spearhead once again. Two hundred blue-jacketed grenadiers made it through the breach and into the city, only to find a second line of improvised defenses hidden just behind the walls. Musket and cannon fire tore into the grenadiers. General Lawn fell wounded. The French lost heart and fell back through the breach. The attack had failed. They tried again two days later, but couldn't even make it through the breach. Once again, casualties were heavy. General Bonn, who had been Napoleon's second-in-command during the revolt of Cairo, was severely wounded. A week later, he would succumb to his injuries. 
the Army of the Orient was nearly spent. Over 2,000 were dead, either in feudal assaults on the city or from the plague. About the same number were either too sick or too wounded to man the siege lines. Meanwhile, the British Navy continued to ferry reinforcements into Acre. The strength of the garrison may have risen as high as 30,000 men, while every day the Army of the Orient dwindled even smaller. The siege was lost. Napoleon seemed to be the only person left who didn't see it. The assault of May 10th would be the last serious attempt to take the city, but the Army of the Orient lingered outside Acre another week and a half, still waiting on their miracle, before Napoleon finally bowed to the inevitable and ordered a retreat. According to one source, Napoleon ordered any plague victims who were too sick to move to be euthanized, so they wouldn't fall into the hands of Jazar Pasha and possibly suffer torture, but he was talked out of it by the army doctors. This has never been confirmed, but the rumor dogged Bonaparte his whole career. If true, it's the perfect sordid capstone on a very ugly few months of Napoleon's career. As always, he tried to spin failure into success. As the army marched away from Acre, Napoleon issued a proclamation. Quote, After having maintained ourselves in the heat of Syria for three months with only a handful of men, after having captured 40 guns and 6,000 prisoners, after raising the fortifications of Gaza, Jaffa, Haifa, and Acre, we shall return to Egypt. I am obliged to go back there because it is the season of the year when hostile landings may be expected. End quote. Even for Napoleon, this was laying it on pretty thick. He was congratulating the army for simply surviving the ordeal which is probably the lowest possible bar for success in a military operation. He also gave them credit for victory at Acre, I suppose on the grounds that they had managed to destroy part of the wall. On the other hand, the invasion of Syria was such a long shot from the very beginning, it actually is pretty remarkable that it merely ended in failure, rather than complete catastrophe. That said, the invasion left somewhere around 6,000 Frenchmen either dead or too disabled to return to duty. With the army critically low on manpower, that number nearly represents a disaster in and of itself, even though they technically hadn't lost a battle. Syria had been Napoleon's last throw of the dice. After the casualties suffered in the campaign, the Army of the Orient was too weak for any more ambitious offensive operations. There was nothing left but to return to Egypt, maintain the occupation, and attempt to swat away any threats from the British, Ottomans, or Mamluks, hoping to hold out long enough for some kind of change in the geopolitical situation that might bring peace with their enemies, or reinforcements from France. Napoleon had won every open battle of the campaign, and yet, as the army fell back into Egypt, he was staring defeat in the face. The failure of the Siege of Acre was the beginning of the end for the First French Republic's presence in Egypt. This has been a very dark episode so far, and so I thought we'd close things out by returning to a slightly lighter subject, Napoleon's personal life. Because by the time of the invasion of Syria, Bonaparte was no longer pining over Josephine quite so much. Another woman had caught his eye. Napoleon had pursued affairs back in Italy, but they were always short-lived flings. This romance in Egypt was something entirely different. 
It became so serious that the relationship was common knowledge, even among the rank and file of the army. Harkening back to classical history, this woman was nicknamed Cleopatra. Her real name was Pauline Forès. She was a clockmaker's daughter from the picturesque town of Pommier, near the Spanish border. Just before her 21st birthday, she married a young cavalry officer named Jean-Noël Fourès, who was on leave convalescing from a wound. Only a few weeks after their wedding, Jean-Noël was recalled to active duty for a mysterious mission overseas. His unit had been chosen for the expedition to Egypt. But Pauline and Jean-Noël were newlyweds, and they were not willing to part so soon. They decided that she would accompany him to Egypt. There was limited space on the transport ships, so wives and girlfriends were forbidden. And so, according to legend, Pauline wore a cavalryman's uniform to sneak aboard. However, given the large number of French women who suddenly appeared in Alexandria when the expedition landed, my guess would be there was some kind of unofficial don't-ask-don't-tell policy in place. The leaders of the expedition must have known that its members would be starved for female company, not sharing the language or culture of the local women. And sure enough, as one of a few dozen French women among thousands of men, Pauline suddenly found herself very, very popular. It probably helped that she was young and beautiful. Most of this attention was platonic, but some officers wanted more, including a young cavalry colonel named Antoine Lasalle, who would soon become notorious for his womanizing. However, Pauline seemed immune to their charms. She seems to have been flattered by the attention, but always remained loyal to her husband. Nonetheless, Jean-Noël was not pleased by his wife's newfound status. He was a young man, with the pride and quick temper of a stereotypical cavalry officer. Pauline first met Bonaparte in Cairo, and from the very first moment he could not take his eyes off her. Soon she was being showered with gifts, and invitations to secret rendezvous with her husband's commander. She refused the meetings, but kept the presents, and so Napoleon persisted. Finally, it became clear that the stumbling block in this relationship was Jean-Noël, and so Bonaparte simply ordered him back to France. Pauline was ordered to stay behind. After all, wives were not allowed to accompany their husbands to Egypt, so how could the army arrange transportation for someone who wasn't supposed to be there in the first place? Shortly after Jean-Noël's departure, Napoleon hosted a lunch for the French ladies of Cairo. A cup of coffee was conveniently spilled on Pauline's dress. Bonaparte escorted her out of the room to clean the stain, and the affair began. Out on the high seas, the ship carrying the unfortunate Jean-Noël was intercepted by the British. He was captured and returned to Alexandria on parole. Rather than wait for new orders, Jean-Noël headed straight back to Cairo. Clearly, he had his suspicions. Of course, when he showed up unexpectedly, like the ghost at the feast, these suspicions were immediately confirmed. Enraged, Jean-Noël confronted his wife and became abusive. She fled right into Napoleon's arms and sought a divorce, which was quickly granted. From then on, she and Bonaparte lived together quite openly like husband and wife. She served as official hostess for functions at his palace and accompanied him at public appearances. Pauline quickly learned to love the money and status that came with her new position. Just like Josephine, she became famous for her parties and extravagant spending. 
there's something about this relationship I find interesting. Napoleon usually claimed to be a traditionalist when it came to gender roles, meaning he believed women should primarily be mothers, and generally docile and subservient to their husbands or fathers. However, he often found himself drawn to women who didn't fit the mold. Josephine certainly didn't, and many of his other romantic interests didn't either. Neither did his mother, who he idolized. And neither did Pauline. She was independent, assertive, and opinionated. Later in life, she would write novels, and achieve a great deal of success in business, a rare feat for a woman of that era. In short, she was a real rival to Josephine. Napoleon was still talking divorce, and even floated the idea of having a child with Pauline. It seemed there was a chance that Pauline might soon become the next Mrs. Bonaparte. Unsurprisingly, Eugène de Beauharnais, Napoleon's aide and stepson, hated her. However, I think there's also another possibility here. There was an unhealthy, sadistic element to Napoleon and Josephine's marriage. They went through cycles of emotional reprisal, in which they deliberately hurt one another out of revenge. Josephine's affair with Hippolyte Charles was a massive betrayal, which had wounded Napoleon deeply. Perhaps this whole romance with Pauline Forest was nothing more than a vengeful gesture. It was carried on so publicly, perhaps the whole point was for word to get back to Josephine, to let her know that he'd evened the score with an affair of his own. We'll leave things there for now. Next time, we'll look at the fallout of the failed invasion of Syria. Until then, thanks for listening. Lucky Land Casino, asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hi, I'm Mike Troy, host of the American Revolution podcast on the Airwave Media Network. This podcast is the origin story of the United States, how we went from colonies ruled by a king to the democratic republic that we have today. The American Revolution podcast tells the story of the revolution from beginning to end. Please subscribe for free. We're available on all major podcast platforms. I hope you will join me today on the American Revolution podcast.